This is Anchored in Christ, the sermon podcast that gives you hope in the gospel as an anchor for your soul. Brought to you from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Self, one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So we came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you who by the very word, or as the ancients said, by a very nod, brought all of creation into being, we invite you through your word to speak to us. Help us to put away the anxieties that we brought here this morning. Help us to trust you with all of our life, our family, our jobs, our neighborhoods, our nation, our world. Take it all upon yourself, take it all upon yourself, Lord, that we might hear you speak to us. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. It's good to be here. I took a course in church history in the 20th century, many years ago, and was brought here, and uh, Nigel Kerr did a lecture about the Great Awakening, and we talked about a chap named George Whitfield here, and uh, it was one of the most important courses I took. I realized the power of what can happen by people who are fully devoted to God, and uh, changed the way I thought about history, and the way I ministered as I pastored a church in Singapore. So I'm honored to be here today. This is a more weighty moment for me, probably, than for most of you. In God's design and creation and redemption, he has established only two institutions, two institutions for human thriving. How's that for a first sentence? The family and the church. In other words, it was God's idea to establish the family. Families are good. Families are from creation, and they are seen throughout scriptures as important parts for human thriving and for redemption. I will not talk about the family today. But I do have some pictures of our new grandson, whose name, strangely enough, is Vance Danger Sunquist. <laughs> True, truly, that's his name. So if you'd like to see those pictures afterwards, I could show you. But today I'd like to talk about the second institution that God created for us. I did not write a book about the family, but I did write a book about the church. Let's talk about the church. It seems that our thoughts about church are too small. 
I think, I think we have low expectations for the church. I believe that in the West, where life is easy and we're not being thrown into prison for being a Christian, church has become more like therapy than a cosmic revolution. More extracurricular for our lives rather than core curriculum. Or, if life is a meal, we think of church as being more like garnish or olives rather than the steak or lobster, the main course of life. We have low expectations for what might happen in us, through us, for us, and for our world through the church. I hope by God's grace to change these ideas this morning. Lord, help us. Let me put it dramatically for you so you will not forget. God's plan to bring about the transformation of all of creation for all of humanity is not an education system. It's not a power system. It's not a powerful colonial government. It's not a host of armies to change the world or even a powerful global technological system. All that God is doing to change people, to change cultures and societies, will not even be done through seminaries. Oh, it hurts me to say that. I thought seminaries were really important. Not compared to the church. God's foolproof plan is the church. When the church in the United States or in our local communities begins to realize this, we can expect headline news. For the moment, we're still too individualistic in our faith, and our faith is too privatized. There's no power, none of the dynamic of the Holy Spirit in individualism. I repeat, there's no power, no dynamic to change the world in individualism. The power of God will be unleashed in communities known as the church. The church to redeem people, neighborhoods, and people bound up in false hopes and false religions. Let's look at our passage now. This passage is about the church. In fact, Paul is writing to a church. So everything is really about a church when he's writing to the church. It's growing in the midst of a powerful pagan culture, a culture that is not happy about the church there. Ephesus was dedicated to the goddess Artemis. The church is lifting up the name of Jesus so that the important city might be dedicated to him. For Jesus is, as Paul says at the end of chapter 1, head over everything for the church, which is his body. Okay, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians 2, if you haven't already. Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 13, gives for the church in here. It's just overwhelming. It's like the church is so important, so big, so dynamic, so important, he can't just stick with one image. It'd be nice to be stuck with the body of Christ. That's a great image. Many different parts, and it does many things. You know, that's a nice image that he uses elsewhere. But here, just listen to all the images that he uses. Some are more concrete than others, beginning at verse 13, and I'm just going to list them. In Jesus Christ, the church is made up of people in Jesus Christ. Secondly, peace. This is a very important word. It's mentioned four times. Peace is really, really important. Access to the Father is found in the church. It's a place of the new humanity. We're not like the same old person we were. For if anybody is in Christ, they're a new creation. We're all a new humanity. There are people, and there are people 
And then there is the church. We're a reconciled community. Fellow citizens, like a whole new state. We are God's people. Our identity is by the person who now owns us, who controls us, who is our Lord. We are God's people. We are his household. That has to do with relationships and domesticity and living together and being together. Built on the prophets, apostles, and Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. So there's a foundation for all of this. A holy temple for the Lord. A place of worship. The church is God's temple. A dwelling. A dwelling in which the Holy Spirit lives. I think this is really amazing. Without saying something like, the church is a building where you go and praise God, or something mundane like that, Paul calls upon a, Paul calls upon a number of images to paint a picture of this amazing thing called the church. Let's just look at three of the images today, because that's really all the time we have. A reconciled community, a household, and a place that the Spirit of God dwells. A community, a household, a reconciled community, a household, and a place that the Spirit of God dwells. First, we look at the strongest emphasis in the passage. What were formerly Jews who seemed to have special access to God and were separated from all the common people in the world. So what used to be Jews are now a new common humanity with others in Jesus Christ. There's no longer Jew and Gentile. This is very, very important for Paul and for Luke because in Acts, it's one of the major themes also in Acts. It was a complete surprise to the Jews that God, that God would not unite all of humanity, all nations, by the power of death and resurrection just as Jews, but he would unite all of humanity, bring them all together through his death and resurrection. Paul says later on, it was a mystery. What was the mystery? The mystery was how in the world he's going to unite people. That's the mystery. And it's revealed in his death and resurrection. Both Galatians and Ephesians talk extensively about this. When it comes to our life in Christ and the church, there are no more divisions according to gender, job, status, economics, race, nationality, ability, or any other type of division. Peace. Peace, Jesus says, to all those divisions that we manufacture. He says, peace. Let me tell you how dramatic this is and how countercultural for us today. Jews had a special relationship with God. Non-Jews, like Syrians, Greeks, or Romans, or Italians, could know God only if they became cultural Jew and a religious Jew. Being Jewish gave you special status. Suddenly, God says in Christ, all are welcome. That didn't seem fair. The Jews had worked so hard to get this thing right. And all of a sudden, he says, all are welcome. None, not even Jews are deserving. So I'll make it possible for all to come in. All can have peace with God and peace with each other. Quote, all at once, I've reconciled people to me, says God. And I've reconciled all of you people to one another. No reason for tensions, no reason for war or competition. All are invited in my peace. 
Wouldn't that be great? Don't we need that today? Read the daily newspaper. The human problem is trust. Trust that is broken again and again. And so we see nations set against nation, gang against gang, ethnic groups against one another. And Jesus says, peace, come into my body. It's a place of refuge where you have peace. The church as a place of peace and reconciliation is both a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven. This is what eternity is going to be like. It's going to be great. And it's a signpost saying, this is what God is doing. Come and see. Live in peace. You don't have to put up with all that. Come and see what I have for you. I'm not making this up, friends. Everywhere in the diversity, it welcomes the stranger. And it's a threat to all of those who want to hold on to their race, their nationalism, their classes, or their purity. This was the case in the Great Awakening in New England, which this church building is sort of an icon or a celebration of. George Whitfield was criticized by the Anglican Church for preaching to indigenous people and people of African descent. He wasn't a good, pure Anglican. He was also criticized for being a foreigner coming here. He understood that the church brings peace and reconciliation to each other. And all of those walls are broken down. Everybody is united and brought in together. I invite you to think about what this means if the church really, really took it seriously today. If we lived into this reconciliation and this peace, we would glory in diversity of races, nations, actually seek to include other races and nations. This is called Christian mission. <laughs> it must be a preoccupation of the church because the church only has two purposes. Did you know that? The church only has two purposes. We exist for just two things. For worship, which is what we're doing today, and witness, which is what we're talking about in this first point of the sermon. That's all the church is for. The church is not for Wednesday night suppers. It's not for Sunday school classes and education. Everything else that we do is for those two purposes, to worship correctly and more powerfully, and to pour out that love into the world. Worship and witness. That's all we do. What would it mean for the church to take this first point seriously? Secondly, household. This is a wonderful image that brings together the two institutions. This is a wonderful image that brings together the two institutions that God has created for humanity of family and church. Here the church is actually called a family or a household. A church is not a place where you go and only look at the backs of the heads of people, which many of us are doing right now. I'm looking at your front, but most of you are looking at the backs of other people. A church is not that place. It's a place of belonging where you're cared for and where you come and care for others. And you look into each other's faces it's a place of celebration together. I got a job. We have a baby boy. It's a place of bearing others' griefs. We gather to remember those who pass on. We weep together. We gather together to bear others' burdens. When I was doing my study in the church, one of the things that struck me is a place of emotion. I hadn't thought about that before. 
But when something great happens, you want to go to church and celebrate. You know, I, I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop myself from mentioning I have an 11th grandchild. I'm celebrating that. I'm so excited. And you bring your joys of getting a new job, getting into college, of marriage, engagement. And then when there's loss, your spouse finds out she has cancer. Or you find out your father's dying, is developing dementia. You have a place where you can come. We can express emotion. We sing it. We pray it. We cry. We hug. That's one of the great important elements of the household of God. The church is the household of God. Sometimes a family is just not big enough to contain all the joy and all the grief. Sometimes a family is just not big enough to contain all the joy and all the grief. The church is that place. So Friday I saw a picture of this. I got a new sermon illustration when I was reviewing my sermon. We have four children all married with at least two children each of their own. We try to get together, all of us, in one house at least once a year. This summer it was 19 of us in our little cottage. Well, our daughter-in-law at that time was eight months pregnant when we got together in July. It was the hottest days in July. It was the first part of July, if you remember correctly. It was up in the 90s, and our air conditioning wasn't working, so she was really hot. And the grandkids were all excited about a new cousin. They loved to get together as cousins. So they were talking about the name. They were talking about clothes they could give the baby and everything. It was so exciting. Our household was awash with ideas for names and for clothes. Ago, we got news that our daughter-in-law had a baby, Vance Danger Sunquist. Seven of the eleven cousins were together in Nashville, Tennessee, and our daughter sent a picture of all these little cousins eating donuts, celebrating, and they're just like this. You know, they're all so excited. And I thought this is so interesting. They haven't seen the kid, but it's just they want to celebrate. That's the way a household is, to celebrate. Everyone cheering for Vance, celebrating with donuts, a household celebrating a new member. Isn't that what happens when somebody comes to faith in Christ? A new member. I've got a great story about that after worship today, for those of you who will stay. The word for household in this passage is what's used for the church in unity. We talk about the ecumenical church or oikumene. That's the word that's used. And that is a great word because it describes people from different places coming together in the unity that they hold. Diversity in an extended family. So our first two points are related. Peace between diverse people and a family united. My wife and I attended a church in Pittsburgh that saw, where we saw this illustrated every Sunday. We lived in an area that was 75% African American. The church had a white pastor, an African American worship leader, a Korean violinist and a Korean celloist, an Egyptian elder and four biracial marriages in the church. There was one biracial marriage and then when other people would come and visit, they'd hear about it, they felt welcomed. Isn't that interesting? They said, oh, this is a place people would understand us. It was a place that said peace to all who entered in. It was like a family, a diverse group where all were accepted. It was a signpost to the larger community of what the kingdom of God is like. 
Thirdly, the church is a place of God's dwelling. Really, the powerful and loving God of the universe chooses to dwell in our gatherings and in our praises. God chooses to dwell specially in our praises. Have you ever thought of that? What does that mean, Pastor? What does it mean for God to dwell in our praises? I don't understand. Well, listen, I'll try to explain. There's power in praise. It's true. We lived in Singapore in a very multi-religious city-state for eight years. We learned a lot by living with, in our neighborhood, Buddhist, Confucianist, Taoist, Hindus, Muslims. I learned that in most religions, because I was teaching missiology or mission, I visited all these different temples and mosques in the area. I learned that in most religions, the worshiper has to do a special ritual to make a special sacrifice to wake up or to invite in the gods or the spirits. Did you hear that? You have to do some kind of special sacrifice to wake up the gods or the spirits. It's almost like uh, bribery to convince the spirits to do something for you. And the things that you're asking them to do is to give you, you know, good health, to help your daughter do well in her exam, you know, to get a job, to get more money. But this is not the way the real God, the true God, relates to us. All we have to do is thank him. He's already active. See, that's the amazing thing. In most temples, in most temples you go and you say, please, you know, help me, save me. And we come in to God and say, please help me, save me. He's, he's there on the cross. I already did. I knew your problem. I analyzed it. I solved your problem. And so we enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. That's why we read Psalm 100. We don't enter in pleading. We enter in, in thanksgiving and praise. We just surrender our personal dreams. We surrender control over our life. And the power of God is released as we relate to God properly. God is God. We are not. We are needy. And so we come and we empty ourselves of our own pains. We empty ourselves of our own egos. And we receive through praising him. Transformed. And, glad the kids aren't here, and to be a transformer. Really? Revelation, that's the last book of the Bible, is proof of this. The book depicts a cosmic battle between God and his holy angels and the great deceiver and the demons. How will evil ever be conquered is the question. Will a white horse and the rider strike a fatal blow? No, that's not it. Victory comes through worship. The revelation came on the Lord's day, and it's in the midst of worship that the demons and the Lord of demons is defeated. Worship is powerful. It is. We underestimate it. Why is it that conversions often take place in worship? Did you ever think of that? The evangelistic work of Billy Sunday, Charles Fuller, Billy Graham, George Whitfield took place in the midst of worship. Lives are changed and we're empowered and the chains of sin and temptation are broken in worship. My wife, 
Nancy and I committed our, my wife Nancy and I committed our lives to God's mission during worship. Our whole lives are going this way and in worship just like that. 43 years later. Yes, I'm old. 43 years later, we're still going that direction. Our lives were transformed in a worship service. Worship is powerful. I am a witness to the power of worship to transform people. Friends, worship is powerful because God, through his Holy Spirit, is pleased to dwell in our worship. Come expectant. Empty yourself of all sin through confession and open yourselves to the power of God in worship. God is eager to empower, to heal, to reconcile, and to send out with new power through our worship. Send your Holy Spirit, dear Father. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. If you'd like more information about our historic church or you'd like to find out more about the gospel of Jesus, please visit our website at oldsouthnbpt.org. The peace of Christ be with you.